0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Joe Firestone is a working stand-up comic, writer, and actor. She wrote a on- Night Show for a few years. She had some great parts on Joe Parra Talks with You and Shrill. Last year, she found herself with some free time on her hands, so she started teaching a class on how to do stand up comedy. Her students, about 16 of them, were members of the Greenwich House Senior Center in New York City. Their average age, I think, was around 70. Then the pandemic happened. But instead of shutting down the class, They moved to video chat. Every morning at 10 a.m., on their computer monitors, they explored what it meant to be funny. Like a lot of comedy classes, it ended in a recital. A very, very funny recital that I'm pleased to report we all get to see. Because it became a TV special. Good timing. It shows you the comedy Joe's students came up with, and it also features interviews between Joe and the students and behind the scenes footage from the classes. Here, Jo is leading her students in a little warm-up exercise.
0: I'm just gonna say words, and you just say whether it's funny or not funny in, by, by itself, okay? Ready? Peanuts. Funny. funny. funny salt. <laughs> okay, how about treadmills? Not at all. Very serious. <laughs> Gerbils? Gerbils? Definitely funny. Gerbils are funny? which what, is gear? I'm sorry, I can't help it. How about Band-Aids? I loved them when I was a kid. I used to put them on all the time. I loved them. (laughs) I really did. And they were hilarious. (laughs) Pumpkins. I don't think so. Pumpkins are not funny. Neutral. Pumpkins are neutral. Neutral, yeah. Okay, what about ghosts? Ghosts. Goats, Yes. Goats. Goats, goats. Or... goats. Oh, the greatest of all time. No, no. Goats. Ghosts. Ghosts? No, ghosts. Goats are funny. Honey, have you seen my goat?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Joe Firestone, welcome to Bullseye. It's nice to see you.
0: Yeah, you too. Okay,
1: so how did you come to start teaching Zoom comedy classes to groups of elderly persons?
0: Well, I had some downtime with my comedy career, and (laughs) I had just just moved to this new neighborhood. And I was like, well, you know, I've taught before, so I was like, maybe I'll start a class. And this was right before, this was about maybe a month or so before the pandemic hit. And so I started a class. I got two or three classes in, and then they they called it, and they said, everybody go home. And then we started up the Zoom, and ever since then, every Monday at 10 a.m., we've been plugging away at learning the art of comedy.
1: Was the original intent of the class to try comedy in your retirement or something along those lines, or is that just how it ended up?
0: Oh, well, it was for, It was at a senior center. It was with the Greenwich House Senior Center. And so I guess it, it did cater to a certain d- uh, demographic age-wise. Um, <laughs> sure. And m- most of them are retired. I, some of them are still working. But, yeah, I think that um most of them had not tried comedy before in their lives, and they decided that this was the time to start.
1: Had you taught stand up comedy before?
0: yeah, I taught comedy like I did a comedy class for a couple of years at King's County Hospital in this um the like i guess it was like the mental health outpatient center, and then I've taught classes like for teens and at, I also taught a different class in. Albuquerque for seniors during the pandemic. So, yeah, I've been definitely busy with, you know, the if you can't do teach kind of thing. Yep.
1: I mean, there are comics who like sincerely despise the idea of teaching stand up comedy, that it is like a thing that can be taught. There are many comics who believe in their hearts that stand up comedy is something that can only be learned. Through suffering, through on stage suffering. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, I, listen, I'm not, here's the thing is I'm not claiming to teach stand up. Con- I don't even know how to do it myself. And I've been doing it for like t- 12 years or something. I, I don't know how to do it. I think what I'm teaching is confidence and trying to be comfortable with yourself enough to say literally whatever you're thinking. And usually that's pretty funny.
1: Were you always confident enough yourself to feel like you belonged to going up on a stand-up stage?
0: Absolutely not. I'm still working on it with these guys. This It's really, and I think especially with the pandemic, I didn't get on stage for a very long time. Like I didn't really do the Zoom shows either. So it's it was kind of like relearning to do it once the vaccine came out. And that was, yeah, it was kind of like we were kind of all on the same timeline a little bit.
1: Why did you think you could do it at the very beginning?
0: When I first started?
1: Yeah. That by the way sounds like more of a challenge than I meant for it to sound like. No. I don't mean to suggest that you shouldn't have thought you could do it.
0: <laughs> I you know I don't know I think I was kind of delusional. I think there was like I I think that I didn't realize what it what it took. And that's why I was like I can do it is like I didn't realize that you're just repeating the same like ten minutes every night, or you're, you know, you're trying to become a brand or whatever. I didn't realize any of that. I just kind of thought, oh, you just make people laugh. That seems fun. And then I, uh, I didn't even really start doing stand up comedy until a few years in. I was just doing kind of weird shows for whoever stopped by.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what does that mean? Jo? Like,
0: I would just do. Sh- I couldn't figure out how to get audiences to come to a show in New York. And I was like, well, the only way to get an audience is getting a celebrity, and that's out of the question, or offering free pizza. And so a lot of the shows would like offer free pizza or kind of surround around the idea of free pizza and like participation and kind of just like giving you an experience so that you'd show up and at least remember what you experienced
1: can you give me an example of a free pizza themed show premise?
0: Yeah. Okay. So like one time I was like, oh, I know what'll get people in the door. And so I hung up a bunch of like inflatables and paper mache and just ha- let people hit at them for six hours <laughs> until they were all kind of a pulp. <laughs> and that that was that was a show, I guess. Did, wait,
1: did you say six hours?
0: Yeah, six hours. I think it was from 11 to 5. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> that was so they could clean up before the dinner rush? <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah, there, there's a lot of stuff like that where you like, there was one called Last to Leave. And it was another six-hour experience where you had to sit through the most boring six-hour-long comedy show. You weren't allowed to check your phone or go to the bathroom because then you wouldn't win the grand prize at the end, which was $100. And it came down to two people at the very end who were lasting it through. And finally, we looked like we announced a winner because the other guy went up like to almost leave, and so we announced the one winner. And so we were all like championing him and like carrying him on our shoulders, and then we all started carrying him towards the door. And that's when he realized he wouldn't be the last to leave. So he started clawing at the walls, like trying to get back in the theater. And the other guy realized <laughs> he was going to win. And then the other guy did win. And it was, uh, it was pretty brutal.
1: <laughs> I've always known you were heartless, Joe.
0: Yeah, I know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> a new level of darkness. Yeah,
0: funny. yeah, it's true. It's kind, of, it's, it's kind of a Joker-style comedy approach.
1: So I've seen you do what could be described as concept stage shows more than traditional stand-up, but you do do traditional Mm stand-up. What were your experiences like the first times you were doing a set on a stand-up show, you know, in a – whatever is the closest you were getting to like standing in front of a brick wall and, you know, going on after Colin Quinn or whatever – like what was that like for you when you went from <laughs> your papier-mâché based material to that?
0: <laughs> I you know I think that at, at times I really did want to be more of a traditional stand-up like I remember one time going up right before Hannibal Buress and I just remember thinking like I wish I could do what he did like I wish I had those skills to just kind of stand there and just deliver jokes and I just couldn't and so I kind of just did whatever I knew how to knew what to do which was like kind of crowd work and causing a little bit of chaos and that that seemed to work for who I am and what how I presented and I kind of slowly came to accept it it's like this is what my brain does so this is kind of what I can do
1: what do you teach in comedy classes when you are working with teens or folks who are at a mental health center or folks at a senior center what are like the concrete things that you do with people?
0: Well, I'm not going to teach teens anymore. I'm too afraid of them. So (laughs) we've kind of ended that, (laughs) but um, (laughs) it's basically the class I think is just figuring out what the people you're teaching like to talk about, what gets them excited to talk about it and what do they have a lot of opinions about. And then just like creating activities and exercises where they can talk about that stuff a lot.
1: I, took a class at San Francisco State when I was in high school that had one class day that was stand-up comedy workshop day. And a guy came in who taught stand-up comedy workshops full-time professionally in San Francisco. And the main thing I remember him talking about is something that is featured in your special Good Timing. Which is taking the microphone off the microphone stand appropriately. (laughs) He's like, "This is so important. Put your foot on the base and pull the microphone out with authority." He's like, "Adjust it to your height and pull the mic out with authority."
0: (laughs) It's a it's a huge logistical thing you don't really think about until it's too late, and not everybody's touched a microphone before, and that's you know. I learned that doing the special and that was, I think that is key. That's, that's your only equipment that you have to be in charge of. And so, yeah, that's, that lesson didn't come up before when we were on zoom. So this was a, definitely an in-person aspect to the class.
1: So when you started this class, what was the first thing that you had people do?
0: Mm, oh, oh, this was really misguided. But basically, I thought it'd be really funny to, for everybody to go around and say their name and <laughs> say what they wanted their stage name to be. And that was like, I think a little bit too left field. That that was like, they were kind of weirded out by that. But then recently, one of the people who was there on the first day of the class and is still taking the class, Bibby, uh, she like wrote a letter about what the class meant to her, and she was talking about how the first day uh, she saw me, and she thought I was very young, really, <laughs> really young. And so she put "very" in parentheses. So I think that maybe I have learned a lot about kind of facilitating this class through their reaction. Sometimes I'll lead activities, and they'll just kind of stare at me, and or they'll begrudgingly do it. But I, I've learned like certain things. Get a lot more response than others.
1: So what's something that works?
0: Okay. So a big thing that works is anything having to do with New York infrastructure improving. So I'll be like, <laughs> how do you make the airport better? Or like, <laughs> what's wrong ma- with the subway? best
1: material comes from the power broker.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes essentially it's a everybody in the class is a protege of jane jacobs it's like there's a lot of uh people obviously have lived in new york city for a really long time so they all think about new york city a lot like the recently the assignment was to create a new flag for the city of new york and some people did some really inventive stuff i mean they had more photoshop skills than i knew what to do with and Actually, Bibby, Bibby did this. Bibby, she had printed out a picture of boars, and she goes, "Well, the flag would involve the five boars." And then you're like, "The five boars? Oh my gosh, this is a pun!" And then she's like, <laughs> "And obviously, New York is known for its." And then she held up like a a virus, like a spore, and she goes, "Obviously, New York is known for its pox, Washington <laughs> Square pox, the <laughs> like." It was incredible. Prospect Park. And she just, I was kind of amazed by what she did. She's like, it's known for its subways. And then she held up a, a piece of paper that just had a bunch of subway restaurants printed out on it. I was like, this is beyond what I'm, I'd ever expect or be capable of.
1: What did you think that teaching specifically at a senior center would be like? Having had a variety of different experiences... Teaching comedy in, in different places. And how did what actually happen compare to that?
0: I think I, I was hoping, because I, I think at the time that I started teaching again, I was kind of getting a little bit jaded. And I, I really tried not to be bitter about comedy. I think it's like it kind of kills your soul if you start to feel bitter. And so I really was trying not to do that. And I think I was sensing at that time in my life, I was feeling a little bit more bitter and jaded with the industry and I was like hoping to connect with some people that maybe just wanted to do this to enjoy comedy and to enjoy making jokes and laughing and not necessarily like compete with each other for very limited career opportunities. And then it turned out like, you know, I think that that was what I was like thinking that going into it, but like it turns out that all these people are very unique and very, Like they have very different motivations for taking the class and they like, I think they all get something out of it. They obviously keep coming, but they. they, I think they all get different things out of it and they have different. I think some of them want to pursue comedy more directly. Some of them are happy with what level of engagement they're in. But it's, I think with any group of people, you go in thinking one thing and then you come out you're like, oh, these are just individuals that happen to all be together on Monday.
1: I thought it was so interesting to hear the different places that the people performing in this special were coming from. And I don't mean geographical places, but, you know, there's one guy who's a semi-professional comic. You know, Mm -hmm. there's one guy who's done stand-up. There's some people who have backgrounds in, in other performing arts, actors and musicians. And then there's, you know, there's people who say, well, I always like making jokes in elementary school, mm-hmm. which, you know, when you're 75 is, you know, there's a little bit of distance there. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you notice the differences in the ways that those people who have those different backgrounds approached this sort of weird, sui generous performance type that is stand up comedy.
0: I think that the people that maybe had done it before were – because this was like our first live in-person show. So just in terms of the special, the people that had like a background in acting or singing or like comedy were a little bit less nervous. And this was like not – this was a pretty low-stakes situation. This was like 2 p.m. There were maybe like 30 people in the audience, and they were all like they're very supportive people that like were friends of – the people that made the special. And
1: hold on, Joe. You say it was a low stakes situation, but you are yeah. talking about people doing comedy for the first time in front of television cameras.
0: True. There were <laughs> eh, six cameras. Yeah. The, and, yeah. Backstage and in front of the stage for sure. Bright lights. Yeah. Big city, that kind of thing. So, yeah, I guess there were, let's go ahead and say 75% stakes. And uh, I think that the people, like uh, one person, She really was nervous. She had not done comedy live before ever. And she like was pretty terrified of it. And I could tell that I was kind of asking her to do something that she wasn't quite comfortable with. And so I offhandedly was like, all right, if you do the show, I'll take you out for drinks. Okay. And she was like, okay. And then like every week since then, she was like, where are the drinks? When are the (laughs) drinks coming and so i I did take her out for drinks recently, and she was like, "Okay, it's worth it, it's worth it." But yeah, I definitely had some incentive plans for a, a few of them.
1: My son recently started playing Little League, mm-hmm. and it occurred to me that his coach, who's a very sweet man, has to send these kids, none of whom know what they're doing, really, out to positions on the field, and he has to assign them slots in the batting order and he has to decide some mix of what will work and like what will be most comfortable for everyone, like what will be the most fun for everyone. And one of the things that I got really anxious about slash interested in was how you decide who to send up first and last (laughs) (laughs)
0: great question great question yeah
1: so because that's really a big deal in stand-up it's really (laughs) a big deal so uh, how do you decide which of this group of people from your zoom comedy class you send up first and last and in what order in between
0: well i put this guy tom padavano up first because he's been doing comedy for the last i think 30 years on and off He works in HR, but he does stand-up comedy. And I had a feeling that he's gone up first before. And so I thought, (laughs) you know, I'm going to put him up first. I know he'll do good. He's got
1: energy. He's bringing energy. Yeah, he got a lot of energy. He's got some gags he knows works.
0: Yeah, strong punchlines. He's going to set the show off right. And then I thought this other guy who does a little bit of comedy, uh, Ziggy. Ziggy Susser. I thought he would be a good closer. He's, you know, he does a lot of jokes about his bird and I thought that's, that's a way to end it, you know, is some bird jokes. Yeah. And
1: you know, never follow a kid and always close with a bird gag. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: It's old vaudeville.
0: <laughs> yeah that's pretty much taken right from the vaudeville books yeah is yeah don't yeah never follow a bird and um yeah, it turned out pretty good. they were telling me after the show that they would like to open and close shows like that all the time. They think they make a pretty good sandwich
1: <laughs> <laughs> So how do you decide where to put the 70 year old man who's decided to perform in sneakers, pasties and uh, bikini briefs?
0: Well, I didn't know that was what he was going to do. That was a surprise <laughs> for everyone. And um, I just thought he was wearing a robe. And um, <laughs> I know I did, the only thing that kind of tipped me off is that he was having these long conversations with the sound people, like, in a way that I was like, what is going on over there? Like, they were, like, looking at him and, like, because he didn't have anywhere to put the mic pack, you <laughs> know? And so that's, I think that was the delay. But I really had no idea that that was what was going to happen. And um, that definitely spiced up the whole afternoon for everybody. Uh, that, that was kind of a, a good surprise that nobody saw coming.
1: Even more with Joe Firestone. After the break, stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR.
0: Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Jo explains the importance of
1: creating a safe space for therapy. I can't tell you how many times I've had clients that say that expression, like, I've never told that to anybody. That's when I know I've made some kind of momentous move with this person. They feel safe enough to expose that part of themselves. And doing that together with somebody else can be very powerful. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com slash bullseye. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Joe Firestone. She's an actor, writer, and stand-up comic. You've seen her on Joe Parra Talks With You, on Shrill, and performing on The Tonight Show. She has a new special out. It's called Good Timing. In it, she teaches a group of New York senior citizens how to do stand-up comedy. It's funny, sweet, and you can stream it right now on Peacock. Let's get back into our chat. There is a popular trope in internet videos, which is old people doing jokes. It's great. It's very fun. Jokes are funny, like joke jokes, street Mm -hmm. jokes. That's a very fun thing to see. And, you know, some of the folks in your classes are really great joke tellers and know a lot of jokes. And I'm like, oh, yeah, jokes are great.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. One of the things I liked most was seeing people who weren't used to representing themselves on stage in this way, representing things that are actually sincerely personal to them. I mean, I think that those bird gags... Are interesting and funny because your man Ziggy really has a lot of perspective on this bird. Like he really <laughs> loves this bird and thinks about it a lot. You know what I mean? <laughs> like that's why it's funny. And that's true of a lot of stand up. How do you get people who haven't been performers but have this wealth of life experience to share things that are true and special to themselves? Instead of or maybe in addition to telling the best party joke they've, they've ever heard.
0: Um, what I tried to do for the show, and some of this made it in the cut, but what I tried to tell them was to, like, basically think about the stuff that they think about a lot. And so basically I had them go through and, like, each list five things that they think about all the time and to kind of try to write jokes about one or m- multiple of those things. And I think also what helped was the time limit. Because they had four minutes tops, and so I think that like maybe you'd want to like tell a story from your life, but how do you make it short? If you only have four minutes, then you have to kind of only stick to the funny parts, or if you want to do kind of a a strange concept, how do you make it? If this is what's in your brain and you think this is what I really want to do, how do you make it a four minute bit? The one thing that I'm uh, I'm so sad it didn't make the cut, but one of the people in the class, Teresa, had this bit about a new product called Wonder Wiki Wipes, I think. And it was a new product she in- invented because her eyelids sweat so much. And <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was like this really... Like, she had a prop. She made a prop. It was a whole thing. And it was very. It was based on this personal thing where she's like, I sweat from my eyelids. How do I make that a joke? And she did.
1: I mean, you expect when you say to a group of senior citizen New Yorkers who are taking a comedy class to write down five things that they really think about a lot. You expect a couple of them to write down pastrami sandwich, but you don't necessarily expect one of them to say eyelid sweat.
0: Yeah, that's that's the thing is that a lot of times I think also they they know that like surprising people or you know saying something that like co- is completely out of the blue it makes the other people in the class laugh a lot. And so I think that they kind of try to say things that the other people don't expect. And I think that kind of makes everybody feel, you know, they're kind of excited to hear what everyone's going to say. Because I think all of them are like, what's the next person going to say? I have no idea.
1: Do you think that they had expectations of you when they signed up for this class?
0: Well, I will say that, like, I'm a little bit unstructured. And I know that a lot of them would prefer more criticism. And I'm just not... I'm not interested in doing that. But I also think that like at one point I've, I've had a few people come in and be guests, like teach their style of comedy. And at one point I had my boyfriend come in and he used to work at the Onion and he like made up like the whole syllabus and like examples and like literally how to write Onion headlines. And people were so into that. Like I think the the week afterwards they were just like, oh, this is what. You really are not teaching us anything. And, like, they kept asking for my boyfriend to come back. And they kept being, like, whenever I was, like, oh, I can't be there this week, they'd be, like, could could the boyfriend substitute? And, um, (laughs) yeah, definitely I'm not, like, the strongest, most structured teacher, but they seem to accept me anyways.
1: Have the students seen you perform?
0: Yeah, unfortunately, yes. Yeah, a few of them found out I do a weekly show, and um, they showed up to it once – And one of them actually heckled, which was. uh, And it was interesting. I have a
1: buddy who does uh, sketch comedy and is a psychiatrist and works with uh, primarily with like residential uh, hospitalized patients. So people who have very serious issues. And he told me one time, he's like, I just have to do everything i can to make sure that they don't know i do comedy (laughs) (laughs) it's like i can't imagine what effect it would have on them (laughs) should they learn (laughs) it is so important that i care for these people (laughs) and that is why they must never know
0: Yeah, I did think, like, when they came to the show, I was like, this is going to be so disappointing. Like, they've been, like, showing up week after week, and now they're like, this is who we're learning from? Oh, no. So I was a little bit afraid of that. But then once I got heckled, I was like, well, I guess this is what it is. They can't. Yeah. But sometimes they've, like, found my videos or watched, like, shows I've been in. And then they, you know, they're they're pretty good at snooping and online detective work.
1: I mean, I was imagining them being confused or disappointed that you weren't as syllabus-focused and driven as you could have been. And then, like, listening to, for example, your podcast that's in our mutual podcast network, which is Mm -hmm. a game show where listeners call in and make the rules of the game. That is the most shambolic, insane. <laughs> like, almost invariably, the joke becomes how how awkward and uncomfortable can we make Joe specifically? Even your co-host Manolo tends to mm-hmm. stick you like a matador in a bull, whenever possible. <laughs> <laughs> like, this this is your uh-huh. native habitat, is to be in that state. <laughs> harried, confused, and doing, cl- mm-hmm. and doing crowd work.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I can't expect them to think, like, to hope for otherwise. I guess that's kind of the comfort. That's what I'm falling back on.
1: I mean, it's funny that that is what you so often do and the thing that is such a a gift that you have and it really is an incredible gift that you have i mean like if i think of stand up comics i know who present the way you do which is to say maybe a little retiring a little <laughs> nervous you know that kind of thing i think mm-hmm. of the person that i think is probably the best stand up comic maria bamford mm mm-hmm. And Maria responds to being that way, which she is in real life to some extent. Mm -hmm. I mean, all stand-up comedy personas are personae, but like she is like that. She responds to that by being the most meticulous comedy writer of any comic I've ever known. Mm -hmm. Extraordinarily meticulous and terrified to engage the crowd directly. She does these days, but it took her 20 years of doing (laughs) stand-up or something to do that. Your response to that same, like, at least way of presenting to the audience was just to dive in, just dive straight into it mm-hmm. and be like, let's do this together, gang.
0: Yeah, I don't, I don't, it doesn't make sense to me either. I really, I wish I was meticulous <laughs> or yeah, that's, it does seem like Maria has chosen the right path for sure. Um, but yeah, that's, Yeah. I think one time my mom saw me perform for the, like, she like hadn't seen me perform in while. She lives in St. Louis. She was like in New York and she's like, it's so interesting. You seem both confident and scared. I guess that's that's kind of what I'm going for. Yeah. (laughs) You
1: mentioned the folks in your class having seen you in TV. You're a writer, producer, and actor on a show called Joe Para Talks With You. That's um, true. Which I truly think is one of the best shows on television. I think it is such a brilliant and amazing television show.
0: Glad you like it.
1: I do. I really love it, Joe. And Joe Parra, the, the star of the show, is a quiet gentleman from Buffalo who talks slowly and carefully in a very steady and low tone. Mm-hmm. And The premise of the show is that he is something like him living in Michigan instead of Buffalo, but a a frozen wasteland either way. Mm -hmm. And he's a sweet middle school teacher. And it's sort of like, it's a little bit like Huell Hauser or another one of these kind of like public television talk to the camera shows. But it's also a kind of slice of life sitcom. It kind of lives between those worlds. And your character is his works at the same school as he does and is his friend and sometimes girlfriend on the show. And I want to play a clip from the show. Your character, Joe, uh, is named Sarah, and she is both a a mousy middle school music teacher and a very intense prepper. Um, (laughs) Someone Mm -hmm. who deals with their anxiety by having just an extraordinary collection of canned goods (laughs) and related products and so in this scene joe para has just told sarah my guest joe firestone's character that when he was a kid he got kicked out of little league for running around the bases a bunch of times even though he had already been tagged out I know it sounds childish, but it feels so good to get that off my chest. I guess I was still embarrassed from when Coach Hasler had me turn in my cap and uniform.
0: It takes guts for you to tell me that, and I don't fully understand it, but I can respect it.
1: Every time we've driven by a diamond, I've held it in.
0: Can I share something with you? Sure. I've dated men from each branch of the U.S. military, and I still keep in touch with two of them. Okay. And we're friends, but it's primarily for intelligence. Makes sense. (laughs) So stupid.
1: (laughs) It's really great. It's so sweet. So there's only – you know, this is a show with – this is a small show with only a few writers on it. You're one of them. hmm Did you have a conversation amongst yourselves about what you were trying to do?
0: Um, usually how that show works is Joe will become fascinated with one thing in particular, like making a bean arch or –
1: and making a bean arch was an entire season-long yeah. arc.
0: Yeah. He he came show. in one day and was like, I know what season two will be.
1: That's bean like arch. When, you, when you have an arch-shaped trellis mm-hmm. or you grow the beans, climbing beans, into an arch shape.
0: Mm-hmm. And so then what the writers do, because we're all friends, is we all kind of were like, okay, bean arch. Never heard of that before. And then we all research bean arches and then – Basically, we all try to figure out if this is the thing that's really exciting Joe, then we kind of all figure out a way to make the story around this thing that's in real life exciting Joe. Like, I've never seen a man really get that excited about being arches, like, even in the show, I think it's muted to (laughs) what it was in real life. And so, I think that, yeah, kind of is just kind of figuring out, like, oh, this is what he's really into right now, okay, let's kind of figure out a way to make a story around that. And at season three is coming out soon. And I think it was kind of like, it gets easier every season. Cause it's like, oh, well, you know, this character does this and you know, this character likes this and, and goes here. And this character is getting older. Or this character's on summer break. And so you kind of just, the more time you spend in that world, the more you're like, oh, I guess, yeah, this, it gets a little bit easier to understand where it's going to go.
1: It feels like there's a lot in the show that is about these characters who are some combination of shy, neurodiverse, and maybe Midwestern learning to be intimate with each other.
0: Yeah, I never yeah, I did I guess I didn't think about it like that. But yeah, I think that could be clear to any viewer. Yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> One of the most distinctive things about the show obviously is Joe is just a really distinctive performer, right? Like he's just you know, you don't see a lot of guys that look like him and talk like him that do comedy, right? Mm-hmm. Or apparently think like him about Bean Arches specifically. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And there is a, you know, he makes what amount to like comedy SMR videos where he just talks about something, interesting information about something over B-roll. And Mm -hmm. those are very popular among people who want to hear a gentle person say interesting, but not too interesting things about something (laughs) nice. (laughs) You know, (laughs) they're great. (laughs) But the thing that really is amazing to me about the show is how profoundly it is about feelings and those kind of feelings of, I think like intimacy and awe, like those are the places where it lives that is like looking at the face of God, whether it's a bean arch or all the stuff that's available at the grocery store. (laughs) (laughs) And, like, learning to connect with somebody. And those are scary things to write about in 15 minutes (laughs) on the Cartoon Network.
0: (laughs) It's it's interesting that – I mean, I I love that that is what you grasp from it. I think it's like if you saw what we're like to get – it's just a bunch of idiots. Like, we just (laughs) – Like we, uh, um, a few of us went on tour, uh, Connor and Dan and Joe and I went on tour and it's, it's not like we're big drinkers or anything. And so the big thing to do would be to go to a new city and then go to the grocery store. And we spent almost all of our time doing that. And I think that's kind of what was inspiration for the grocery store episode. It's like, but I don't know if even we thought about like, you know i think then we started to be like it's kind of disturbing that we do this like maybe we should see the town like maybe we should do anything else but we just kept going to the grocery store spending all of our time there and yeah i think that i don't know i'm i'm glad that something deeper comes out of it and i think that is a lot to do with you know joe and marty the director and but I, yeah if you see the writers it's just, it's a bunch of people being like <laughs> what if the Pope, and that's like a pitch, you know, and then you kind of think, okay, well, yeah, what if the Pope? And then <laughs> and then somehow you get a full episode.
1: We'll wrap up with Joe Firestone after a quick break. When we return, Joe talks about researching her role as a doomsday prepper on one of my favorite TV shows, Joe Para Talks With You. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Joe Firestone. Good Timing is her new comedy special. She's also an actor, writer, and producer on Joe Parra Talks With You. Did you think about what you wanted your character on that show to be? Other than, you know, a quiet, mousy counterpart to quiet and mousy Joe Parra's character?
0: Well, I was kind of shocked that I had the Part. I, I was like, when they were like, oh yeah, you're going to play this character. And I was like, but really? Are you sure? And then the second season, I was like, really? Do you really, you can recast me. I think that would probably would be the best thing to do. And um, yeah, for the third season as well, I said, if you want to, please recast me. I don't think that I'm right for this part. But then they they kept uh, bringing me back. But uh, yeah, I think that, um, I don't know. I think that it's definitely, the first season I did it, I got really into prepping lifestyle and i got really nervous and i like bought all this equipment to, like wind up clocks and and like water purifiers for my home and it was just not good and then i realized between season 1 and season 2 that if there's an apocalypse i'm just going to die and so that kind of made me feel better about the relating to the character i was like oh okay i'm just going to we're going to be separate <laughs>
1: <laughs> Wait, so did your actual life inspire the characters anxieties or did the characters' anxieties inspire those anxieties in your own life? Yeah,
0: the, the characters' anxieties inspire the anxieties of my own because I did so much research about it about prepping. And then it started to be like, well this makes sense. It seems like the thing to do. And then um I I yeah, I just realized I'm not strong enough. I can't be staying alive after people start bringing out, you know, harpoons and stuff. Yeah, I gotta go, gotta go.
1: I mean, I feel like if we've learned any lesson from the geopolitical events in the United States of the past five years or so, it's that doing too much research about something on the internet (laughs) (laughs) is just inevitably. So if you're lucky, it just means you're gonna spend too much money on guitars. But if you're (laughs) not lucky, all of a sudden you're wearing a a bear's head on top of your own (laughs) and like climbing to the top of the Washington Monument.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is, yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. And it's like, at this point, it's like, I got a dog. He doesn't even like to go in a bag. There's no chance I'm getting (laughs) out of New York city. Like I'm going down and that's fine.
1: (laughs) Do you think that you have learned anything about your own work from working with these folks in your class?
0: I think I've learned to be, they're really productive and like they have a lot of uh, work to show for them at this point. They've been doing assignments every week and like they come up with a lot of material in the classes. And I think there's been times where I've been kind of slow to make material or to write it all. And the fact that they just keep writing and they keep making stuff and they're so prolific, it does inspire me to write more and to make more stuff because I think if I left to my own devices, I would just kind of like panic about a a show and just be like, Oh, okay. I'll just, yeah. I'll just let the crowd destroy me. And then, uh, yeah. And then, but I think it's like, it's really nice to be working on stuff all the time and kind of use your brain in that way.
1: Do you give yourself the assignments that you give the folks in your class?
0: I, I don't ever, I don't always do them, but sometimes I just think about like, what would I not resent doing if somebody asked me to do it? Like, This was a really good one. I thought this was one of my best assignments yet. It was to do a patented self-defense move. (laughs) And I was like, this is going to be good because we're going to have everybody demonstrating the self-defense moves. It's going to be active. It's going to be great. And this one guy, Al, who was too busy to do the special, but he's in the class and he's (laughs) <laughs> Always talking about. He was too busy to do this. He special. was way too busy. I begged him, That's but That's also, too busy. by the
1: way, why I've never had, been in a TV special. Of course. Everybody's
0: too busy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. This guy, he's like this amazing, he's like, a, he's a crooner. He's like this incredible, talented guy. And he, his favorite thing to joke about, he's been joking about this for almost 2 years now is his banana washing his banana keeping his banana hard making sure it mingles with other bananas i mean this is the banana guy the, yeah. like people have got him banana socks he's obsessed with his banana and that's a <laughs> euphemism
1: yeah. and
0: so then i was giving examples of what self defense moves to do and i was like so maybe maybe one person can come up with a move where you punch somebody in their banana and then Bibby, who's in the special, goes, That would be called a banana split. <laughs> and it was like all of this this guy's jokes for the whole time paid off in this one moment it was so <laughs> glorious.
1: <laughs> well, Joe, it is such a great special. I so enjoyed watching it and I Thank and you. I do so love Joe Parra Talks with you as well and your wonderful podcast and your stage work. I'm I'm so grateful to get to work with you and, and thanks for making the time to be on Bullseye.
0: Thank you for having me. I love this show and I I'm a fan and I'm I was excited to be asked to be on it. Thank you.
1: Joe Firestone. Her new special is called Good Timing. I highly recommend it. You can watch it right now on Peacock. It is sweet and funny and delightful. Just like Joe. As I mentioned, Joe is both a writer and an actor on the TV show Joe Parra Talks With You, and we have some good news on that front. Season three of that show coming Sunday, November 7th. You can watch it on Adult Swim. Appointment viewing. I love that show so much. I hope you will watch it. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where, <laughs> here here at my house, a tree fell on it. Um, not the whole tree, but a giant branch. Oh, by the way, here's a fun fact. When a giant branch falls off a tree, it totally makes the, like, sound that a tree falling over in a movie makes. That crackling cracking sound is exactly what it sounds like in real life our show is produced by speaking into microphones our senior producer is kevin ferguson our producer is jesus ambrosio production fellows at maximum fun are richard Roby and valerie moffitt we could help from casey o'brien as well our interstitial music is by dan wally also known as djw our theme song is called huddle formation recorded by the group the go team thanks to them and to their label memphis industries for sharing it with us you can also keep up with our show on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. We post our interviews in all of those places. And I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.